Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 26th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is being held this week in the historic African-American community of Eatonville. We'll talk with Zora's niece, Lucy Ann Hurston. And I'm very comfortable, as was she, about just being different. We'll discuss the Second Seminole War Journal of Jacob Brett Mott. He had studied the classics while at Harvard. So his prose is, is, um, uh, echoes that, that kind of education. And talk about Spanish colonial era olive jars. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This song is called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that, I gathered that in 33, 1933. When I get in a hill and noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it. Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Eat him up, whiskers, so he won't shave. Eat him up, body lights, he won't bathe. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? That's Zora Neale Hurston documenting folk songs she collected in Florida in the 1930s. Trained as an anthropologist under the renowned scholar Franz Boas, Hurston is best remembered for her classic 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Although largely forgotten when she died in 1960, Zora Neale Hurston's work is now a staple in classrooms around the world, and two Florida festivals honor her memory every year. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held the last week in January in Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, and ZoraFest is held each April in Fort Pierce, the town where she died. Lucy Ann Hurston was just a toddler when her aunt passed away, and she discovered Zora's work on her own. I came to know who Zora was by finding her books in the attic of our house in Brooklyn, New York. I was an avid and early and voracious reader, And I found a first edition signed copy of this old yellow frayed hard-covered book in my attic. And with nothing better to do during my summers, I read books. And I read The Rise of Watching God when I was nine. And just became bent on a mission of finding out who this person was, um, who had my last name, that wrote such a phenomenal piece of work, and I came to find out what a fascinating life she had. Once Lucy Ann Hurston discovered her Aunt Zora's work, family members were able to provide details about the writer's life. My father was her baby brother, and so once I started asking the questions, he was more than happy to 
Let me sit at his feet and hear all the stories about my Aunt Zora. Although Lucy Ann Hurston is a cultural sociologist and not an anthropologist, she has followed in Zora's footsteps to a degree, conducting academic research in Jamaica and throughout the Caribbean. I think methodologically, Aunt Zora and I are kindred spirits, um, and I found out um, only by accident by when I started doing the research for the book that I had written that we had tromped on the same dirt. Um, going to Jamaica, we're looking at uh, di- similar but different issues um, to the Bahamas, uh, different islands in the Caribbean, looking at cultural issues. So as a cultural sociologist doing ethnographic and oral history and interview work and immersion work, I find that methodologically she and I line up right next to each other. Lucy Ann Hurston compiled and wrote Speak So You Can Speak Again, The Life of Zora Neale Hurston. Presented as a scrapbook, the publication contains reproductions of artifacts from Zora's life. It was a book in which I could take some of the uh, physical material elements left behind that uh, from her life that were creations of hers or representatives of her life and put them into a multimedia book where people could uh, take pages and papers that she had written. They could see her handwriting. They could see the, the um, font called the typewriter print. Um, they could hear her music. Uh, they could hear her interviews for the first time um, since 1960. You could hear her voice and that she could be with every um, small person um, through the purchase of this book. So if you knew a lot about Zora, then this became your own personal um, kind of scrapbook of her life. If you knew little of, of Zora or nothing of Zora, this is a, a wonderful primer, a wonderful introduction, that a springboard to the larger volume of her work. And it's a project where it's the first time that members of the family um, have ever written about, about Zora. This is again for lining. This is the lining. lining rhythm. Now, uh, where, where is the, the movement? When they say shaka laka laka like they're getting ready to pull back, and when they say ah, they show the rail. Uh huh. Oh. And in other words, it's quite, for this song, this song gives them quite a lot of rest in between. Right, a lot of rest in between. And, and a harder shove. And a harder shove at the end. They and say ah, they all go. It seems to have have a different effect from the other lining one you yes. you gave. I mean that one about uh, mobile. Yes. But some of them are short and some are long, just according to the mood of the line. And the men work whatever song he sung. They work that rhythm. In addition to being kindred spirits with Zora and preserving her legacy with the Speak So You Can Speak Again project, Lucy Ann Hurston has staged a production of Zora's play, Mulebone. The Mulebone play, which was written in, um, in 1930 with Langston News, was meant to be a five-act play that depicted uh, the story, uh, this love triangle between these two young men and this young lady, and uh, three acts into writing this five-act play that was going to give a more... Um, accurate representation of uh, Negro life and culture, um, there was a fallout between Langston and Zora, and it never got completed, and it was never staged during either of their lives. Um, I staged it um, in the the 1990s for a high school production in Connecticut, and that was the only high school production of it, and then um, Lincoln Center put on a production of it with Taj Mahal doing the music. Um, so three acts of it were done there. Lucy Ann Hurston was able to develop a friendship with author and activist Stetson Kennedy before he died in 2011. 
Kennedy and Zora Neale Hurston had a complex relationship. Both were very interested in equality for African Americans, but had differing ideas about how racial problems should be addressed. Kennedy was Hurston's supervisor when both were collecting oral histories in Florida for the WPA in the 1930s and 40s. I met Stetson um, years ago um, at, at an engagement, and this this little old man walks up to me and says, "My God, you look just like Zora." And we've been in touch. I think it was probably at one of the earliest uh, Eatonville festivals, um, and we've stayed in touch and became close and dear, fast friends. Um, so what I know uh, more of Zora during that era, of uh, the WPA era, comes from the relationship that I had with Stetson. And he would tell me, uh, he filled in some of the, some of the gaps as far as uh, rounding out her personality to me, that she was uh, not to be corralled or handled or directed. You sat in earnest and waited for her to make her appearance to you. And you were always grateful when she did because she came bearing gifts, cultural, um, wealthy, uh, chunky, cultural writings of where she had been and who she had been with. So you could almost close your eyes and envision because of the depth of um, detail that she had in her reporting for the WPA. You could almost be there with her. Um, and there were times that he was there with her. Um, so that much information about that era of her life, I am fortunate to have bumped into um, Stetson Kennedy to have gathered that information. Over the past four decades, the work of Zora Neale Hurston has moved from obscurity to widespread popularity. It is included in high school and college courses around the world. Lucy Ann Hurston. It's been wonderful on a, on a personal level because that's auntie. Um, as an academic, it's fabulous that we've expanded the canon. Um, so we don't have these, these fringe areas where it's easy to ignore um, marginalized populations. So um, thanks to Alice Walker and that genre of academics, Zorba has moved from black history, from women's history, from Afro-American literature into the canon of um, American literature and a foundation of understanding where we are now based on where we've come. And those people that contribute to that understanding um, are, you know, taught as part of the basic canon in schools across America and, and further. So you will get a good education when you've had some Shakespeare, some Hemingway, some Faulkner, and some Hurston. More than just sharing a physical resemblance to her aunt and similar academic pursuits, Lucy Ann Hurston feels connected to Zora Neale Hurston on a deeper level. I guess as, an, as, a, as a shared outsider, um, the, the idea of just being different. Um, and I'm very comfortable, as was she, about just being different. You know, um, that, we, that, that I don't walk lockstep with other people and I see things differently and I move on that and those things uh, that excite me, uh, being at work, um, doing research, waiting for the semester's end so that I can travel off somewhere and do some, uh, do some research in Jamaica or in St. Kitts or in Turks and Caicos or uh, in, in New Orleans, um, to just be at work, to be knee-deep in work. Um, it's empowering to come back with that data and to, to um, decode it and to massage it and to work it up and to present it at conference or share it in the classroom, and my students are all the more better for it. 
Um, but just to know that I've contributed to building a bridge to somewhere, an understanding of something that I've contributed and let will be hopefully leaving something behind of value when the day ends. Lucy Ann Hurston teaches sociology at Manchester Community College in Connecticut. She is the niece of Zora Neale Hurston, who is celebrated with a festival in Eatonville during the last week of January and in April with an event in Fort Pierce. Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field. Her mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it. Oh, shack a like a like a like a like a like a. Can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The captain got a pistol. He tried to play bad. But I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, can't you line that? Ah, shaka, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where there is always something new to see, including archived editions of this program. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll be supporting important educational outreach efforts throughout the state. That's myfloridahistory.org. History can seem to focus on charismatic leaders who shape public opinion or concentrate on milestone dates that stand out as important turning points. History, though, really consists of the lives, experiences, and stories of everyday people. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. Ben, today we're looking at the journal of Jacob Rett Mott, who was stationed in Florida during the Second Seminole War. That's right. And Jacob Retmott was actually a native of Charleston, South Carolina. He was born in a, to two prominent Charleston families in 1811. Uh, was very well educated in Charleston, but decided to follow his older brother's footsteps and headed to Harvard. Eventually graduated from Harvard in 1832. Uh, and from a number of his surviving uh, notes and observations about Harvard, he was uh, quite an interesting fellow and really enjoyed the aristocratic lifestyle. Uh, but something inside of him uh, seems to to have pointed him towards the military career direction. And he actually originally sought uh, admission into the uh, United States Military Academy, but unfortunately didn't receive uh, that commission. 
headed back to Charleston and decided to study medicine. There he spent a few years in private practice and gained uh, some experience working with, uh, working with the, the sick and, and under the supervision of a surgeon. And then in 1836, shortly after uh, the United States uh, entered into this official conflict with the Seminole Indians, which at that time was known as the Florida War, Mott decided to uh, join the military as a surgeon. And at that time, the uh, uh, medical staff were part of the military, but they didn't have uh, the same rank. So he would have been uh, considered an officer, but was at that time known as uh, an assistant surgeon. Uh, he joined in, in 1836 and, and headed, into, uh, headed into Indian country. Now, Mott was a prolific writer, and he was a witness to some very pivotal events in the war and, and wrote about him in his journal. Yeah, that's right. And what we're looking at today is the journal of, of Jacob Retmott that chronicles his experience uh, in Florida, not only in Florida, but also throughout the Creek frontier, Creek Indian frontier in Georgia, Alabama, and also uh, later in his career, he spent some time in Michigan and around St. Louis. Uh, but it... it because of his uh, background, he had studied the classics while at Harvard. So his prose is, is um, uh, echoes that, that kind of education. Uh, and it's very beautifully written. It's a fluid journal. Uh, and, and the way that he describes a lot of these events, as you describe some of the, the main turning points in the history of the Florida War, is really incredible. And it's, it makes for a fascinating read. Um, one of those particular events, though, and, and the one that we're looking at now, uh, is the capture of the uh, Seminole Indian chief or war chief uh, that we now know of as Osceola. Uh, he became the symbol for the, the struggle against the uh, federal forces in Florida. And Jacob Retmont was present at his actual capture. Uh, and Osceola, when he was, was captured, it was actually under the flag of truce. So he and a number of other warriors came into uh, uh, an encampment that was known as, as Fort Payton, just south of St. Augustine, in October of 1837. And the uh, commanding general at the time gave uh, direct orders to capture these warriors regardless of the circumstances. Uh, and even though they came in to uh, essentially parlay with the troops, it was under under the flag of, uh, the white flag of truce, uh, immediately after coming in, uh, when the Seminoles refused to meet the demands uh, of, of emigration out to Oklahoma, uh, the U.S. troops swooped in, clapped them in irons, including Chief Osceola. And uh, Jacob Retmont describes the reaction of Osceola and, and in great detail describes uh, what his uh, what his demeanor was like. A lot of the regular soldiers and a lot of the officers uh, even felt that, that the nature of this capture was uh, uh, not becoming of, of the U.S. Army and, and uh, was in direct violation of uh, what he refers to as the art of war. Now, in addition to being disenchanted with uh, the war, uh, Mott also didn't really like Florida a whole lot, did he? Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Uh, at the time, you know, the uh, the federal government hadn't spent uh, much time in Florida. In fact, very few people knew much about Florida. It was still uh, quite a frontier, and there were only a few hardy, you know, frontiersmen who had blazed trails into the interior. So the Army had the duty of doing that, and they had to develop uh, roads. They had to uh, blaze these trails, build forts, and a lot of the time that Mott and other soldiers spent uh, was was during this, this type of activity. So um, very often the soldiers never saw saw a Seminole Indian. Uh, the, the skirmishes were generally rather quick and uh, ended without, uh, often without them ever even seeing a Seminole Indian. And uh, Mott describes uh, Florida as being, quote, neither land, water, nor air, the poorest country that ever two people quarreled for. 
He notes here that it's a perfect paradise for Indians, alligators, serpents, frogs, and every other kind of loathsome reptile. Uh, he mentions that Florida is where the, the demon of desolation stalked with unchecked sway. And as a surgeon, uh, Mott was really on the front line of, of a lot of the uh, this ill sentiment that the soldiers felt because he had to treat a number of these soldiers who uh, fell ill with uh, dysentery, malaria, other types of, of subtropical diseases. Now, Mott's journal has been published in book form, but what you have here is a, a beautifully uh, handwritten journal, his original journal. Yeah, that's right. So Mott spent approximately 14 months in Florida. Uh, during that time, he took uh, copious field notes. Now, the original field notes, unfortunately, are, are lost to history. But shortly after leaving the Army in 1845, Mott sat down and compiled these notes into the manuscript that we're looking at now. Uh, and many historians believe that the manuscript was intended for publication, but for some reason never was. We have the only copy of this handwritten journal. And as you see, when you flip through the original version, there are a number of omissions. Uh, spellings uh, of, of place names have changed over time. In fact, Osceola, as we spell it today, uh, was changed from his original spelling, which was much more phonetic as Asiyahola, as he would have heard it pronounced by some of the other Seminole Indians at the time. Uh, so y you can see some, some editorial changes uh, as a result of, of hindsight. You know, after the war had ended, he sat down and, and compiled these notes. Mott died uh, back in Charleston in 1868 without ever having published this manuscript. There is one other version that looks like it was par partially written by Mott and then finished by uh, someone else's hand that was heavily revised that probably would have been the, the final version uh, he, he would have intended to, to publish, but it was never never done until the mid-1950s when a, a few Florida historians got together. They discovered this manuscript. It was housed here in the Florida Historical Society uh, and transcribed the entire manuscript, uh, uh, edited it, and, and put it together with, within some historical content. Uh, so now historians and, and researchers can access this book. It's, it's uh, entitled Journey into the Wilderness, which we believe is what my uh, would have uh, entitled the original original publication. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Common objects can be important artifacts that tell us much about life in the past. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this report on Spanish colonial-era olive jars. These are a, um, a wheel-thrown type pottery. So if you're looking at, um, uh, at ceramics, at a, from my interest anyway, from an archaeological site a, um, uh, where, you, where you have mixed occupation, and you're only looking at small sherds, you can pick up a piece of the olive jar and immediately see um, uh, the handprints inside of grooves where a hand was uh, inside shaping the, the jar as it turned on a wheel, which is a European uh, uh, way of make, making pottery. It's, um, I don't think it was made in parts. Um, it was probably one large vessel then with a ring uh, put on top, a, a neck. And the one we're looking at has a neck that looks just like a donut. Some of the earlier ones had a more of a flaring, cylindrical uh, type of neck. That was George Long from the University of Central Florida. He spoke to me about Spanish colonial-era olive jars. These jars and their shards have been found throughout Florida. 
Professor Long showed me an example of an olive jar on display at the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando. Olive jars were large ceramic containers the Spanish used to haul liquids and small food items, as well as other materials for transport across the Atlantic on their ships. Often, archaeologists only find small shards, but there are whole jars that have been preserved and on display at museums across the state. If you've seen one in person, it looks like a large brown egg-shaped ceramic container with a small opening at the top large enough to put your hand or arm through. They resemble the jars you've probably seen used during the ancient Greek and Roman times. Craftsmen in Europe created various sizes, some that would come up to a person's waist and others that would come up to their chest or even chin. Archaeologists at the beginning of the 20th century referred to these specific types of jars as olive jars, and the name stuck even though the Spanish never used that term themselves. Here, George Long tells me what these objects were used for by the Spanish. Olive jar sherds are found uh, almost anywhere where the Spanish uh, had any contact, either mission sites or trading sites, uh, towns like uh, St. Augustine, uh, because the olive jars are a very common type of um, a storage vessel. They carried wine in them, olive oil, a variety of materials. They're um, used for shipping. They're used for storage. They um, find their way wherever you had any type of uh, Spanish activity during the colonial period. Ceramics left behind by people are really important for a variety of reasons. Professor Long tells us why. Ceramics are so important because they last. Uh, they're, they're permanent. Um, and not only do they last, they are subject to a lot of modifications in form and function to tell us a lot about uh, how, how they're used. And not only do they vary a lot in their form and function, they vary a lot in their surface treatments and decorations, which uh, is handy for um, sometimes for dating purposes and also illustrating that they have some type of um, real elite type usage or they're um, very simply decorated for uh, everyday purposes. Wherever the Spanish were in North and South America, we find these jars. Since specific designs and textures were used at different times, they have become an important clue in dating Spanish colonial settlements. Here, Professor Long talks about the ubiquitous nature of these jars. This type of vessel has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Mediterranean area. It's been uh, found in North America, at wherever the Spanish had um, missions, towns, shipping interests. It's, it's just a common basic uh, shipping vessel. I think it has to do with the, with the size and the durability. It's about the size that one person could carry, uh, maybe heavy when full. Uh, it's a shape that you could put in ships. You couldn't uh, really set it on the table very well because it has a rounded bottom to stuff in the, the straw. It has a very thick wall. Um, strong. Um, that's why it's, um, it, it, it survives so well, at least in the shipwrecks. So they're handy for um, archaeologists to sometimes tell how, how old a particular site is. Not only do the jars tell us about the Spanish, but they also tell us about the native people of Florida, as Professor Long explains. Anybody that had contact with the Spanish during the colonial period probably had contact some way with olive jars. If they were doing any trading at all, or receiving any, any uh, Spanish material, the olive jar is just a, a basic item for, uh, for a container. Uh, they could have obtained these from uh, 
either going somewhere and, and uh, meeting with the Spanish. Uh, they could have had Spanish missions uh, set up near their villages or in their villages. They could have had Spanish uh, explorers coming through their area. Uh, there, there are a number of ways that you would um, be associated with the olive jars. And, and almost all sites that had any significant Spanish contact at all, uh, archaeologists will generally find at least fragments of olive jars. I interviewed George Long and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was George Long, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please come back right here again next week. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow our daily posts today in Florida history on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.